You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. for us this morning. We're in the Shorter Catechism. We have many copies up here. If you would like to borrow one for the day or if you would like to have one to take home and bring back, uh, these are yours. So Ron will bring them around. If you want one, flag them down. I know we've been giving them out every week and so most of you probably have one. Um, If you want to return it after today, just drop it in this box on your way out. We're going through this great Uh, summary introduction to the Christian faith and particularly what we believe as a church at Redeemer. And we are today in questions eight and nine. Um, Let's see. All right, my resources. Uh, This is a book called the Westminster Shorter Catechism for study classes. Um, We recommended a similar book for the Westminster Confession when we went through that. Um, This is by G.I. Williamson. He wrote the book for the Confession, wrote this for the Shorter Catechism. It's a great resource for asking good questions, uh, for explaining what's going on, for discussion. Maybe older kids, this is a good thing to go through with, uh, or for husbands and wives to go through with. What's that? I said wonderful illustrations. Yeah, I was about to say wonderful illustrations with this little guy named Shorty. Um, Yeah, so make sure you see Shorty as you flip through some great little illustrations. So (laughs) we'll pass that around. Makes it it fun. Learning fun, right? So uh, we'll recommend that as as another resource for diving in more to our catechisms. All right, so we're questions eight and nine. And eight really is an umbrella question uh, that sets logically uh, the stage for what's coming next. And so we won't spend much time on that. And then we'll really spend the bulk of our time on question nine. So question eight is this, how doth God execute his decrees? And this doesn't come out of nowhere. This uh, comes out of last question. The last question was, what are the decrees of God? His eternal counsel um, that Pastor Wright went through last week. And then, so the question is, God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. How does he execute that? How does this work out in space, time, and history? And so what, uh, how does God execute his decrees? Question eight, God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Creation and providence. These are the ways God works out his eternal decrees in space, time, and history. Um, There's two elements the catechism draws our attention to. One is this one-time beginning work of creation, and then this ongoing work of providence. And again, as I said, this is the umbrella question that encompasses the next several questions underneath it. So we will look today really at question nine, which is, what is the work of creation? So we're looking at half of this equation or the answer from question eight. So question nine is, what is the work of creation? Answer, the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. So there is a lot to unpack, and we're going to take this word by word or phrase by phrase to help us unpack creation and the biblical doctrine of creation. But first, there's several key scripture passages that we're going to read. We're not going to go into depth with these, but we'll be referring back to many of them as we unfold this doctrine laid out in the, uh, the catechism. 
And the first is one that you all probably know very well. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And of course, all of Genesis 1 unpacks this in the series of six days as Genesis recounts that for us. Uh, Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So we have the word of the Lord doing this creative act, making all things, all of it came to be by his word. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word. This is a reference to the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So as we'll see uh, momentarily, this is the second person of the Trinity intimately involved in creating everything that there is. Hebrews 1, making the same point, through his son, God created the world. The son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then finally, we have here Hebrews 11. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. All right, so we just had a wash, a wall of scripture here, and we'll, we'll unpack these point by point in a few moments. Any, any questions here um, about these, or comments here about these five passages? All right. Let's look at the, the wording then of our confession, and we'll see that a lot of it comes straight out of Scripture. Um, all these ideas are directly derived from Scripture. And so we'll go through the, the key concepts. I can't remember how many we have. One, two, three, four, five, six, I believe. So we'll just be working our way through these concepts that arise out of question nine. And the first one, what is creation? The work of creation is God's making. So this is foundational for us to remember, and it's something that we will instinctively say as Christians. What is creation? Well, this is what God did. And this is the way scripture begins. In the beginning, God created. So we, 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 we want to rush past this point, but we, we need to stop and pause and remember, all creation is a work of God. It's not a work of us. It's not a work of some other forces or angels or demons, all creation is God's making. God is the only one acting. And we can say this is a Trinitarian act, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all acting to create everything that there is. We saw in the beginning, God created. We saw the Son uh, is explicitly given, uh, a tr creation is attributed to him. And then we also see in Genesis 1, 2, the Spirit is hovering over the waters. And so we see the Spirit intimately involved in creation as well. This is a Trinitarian act. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved in creation. Our making... And our creating, we often you know, talk about creators or artists or uh, people creating things. And our creating is only derivative. We don't actually create things. We reshape and reform uh, things and put them together, maybe in, in new ways for humans. But we're not actually creating in the same way God created. And we'll see uh, God creates of nothing, out of nothing. And that's certainly not the case of our creation or our making. So God's making, God's action, God working. 
And what does God make? Well, God makes all things. All things, Colossians 1.16, for by Christ all things were created. So again, this is highlighting the, the, the second person of the Trinity, his involvement, his work in creation. For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So all things were, were created, and, and uh, Colossians, the reason we bring this up is because it mentions explicitly visible and invisible, everything, thrones and dominions, this, the angelic realm, the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm, all of these things were created by God. Heaven was created by God. Sometimes we don't stop to think of that. We think God has always existed in heaven. No, God has always existed, and then he created heaven in which to dwell. Even a heaven is God's creation. Invisible and invisible angels are his creation. Uh, demons are fallen angels. And of course, humans are God's creation as well. And that's the next, the next question we won't be dealing with today is, uh, what does it mean that we were, uh, we were created? Um, how did God create man is the question. Um, and so that, that'll be for next week. But... Um, But we have all things, everything. Nothing is exempt from God's creative work. Everything we see is God's creation. Uh, We'll pause there uh, before we keep going for comments, questions. All right, we're all tracking today. I love it. Good, good. But I do encourage questions too. So, Um, all right, so God is making all things of nothing out of nothing. And we read from Hebrews earlier. Um, And this is a Latin phrase that you've probably heard uh, before that's often used, ex nihilo, from nothing, out of nothing. So God's creation was out of nothing. It is a unique kind of creation because it brought to be when there was nothing there. Nothing is not a thing. It's not a substance. Nothing is nothing. And God made something out of nothing, which philosophically makes no sense at all, except that he is God and he is the creator. And when we try to to comprehend this, there's no analogy to us creating this way. There's no analogy in creation for this operating. Some might say, well, we create ideas. But even the ideas that we create or come up with that nobody else has, has had before, they're still based upon a world and a realm that's, that's, that's already there. We can't even imagine that which is not. And so out of nothing, God creates everything that there is out of nothing. There is not some uh, primordial soup sitting there and God created out of that. God created everything that there is. Nothing was here apart from God's creation. Only God pre-existed creation. There's no prior existence of matter, no prior existence of souls, no prior existence before creation. And this is what makes Christianity's claim of creation so distinctive that God made things that were not previously. Everything is because of God's creative work. Um, Now, it's interesting, if you go through the days of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, 
Not everything that God created was created out of nothing. I'll show you an example. What I'm thinking of is Genesis 2, 6 or 2, 7, where it says man was formed of dust from the ground. Now, the dust of the ground was created from nothing, but then out of what God had created, out of the matter God had created, he then created man. So it's interesting, even in Genesis 1 and 2, not everything was created ex nihilo because we were created out of what was already there. Um, But the fact that it was even there is a testament to God's creative power. And this really is getting at the central um, uh, point that I think demands um, a Christianity being the worldview that somebody holds. Because apart from this, science has no explanation for how things came to be, right? Science can only tell us uh, a true science that's, that's trying to explain, understand the world as it is today, making sense of the laws of nature, making sense of the world that we have. Science cannot go back and tell us how things came to be. And those that say science can do that, are, they're, they're doing more than science. Uh, they're doing philosophy. And when we say that, okay, let's take the, the theory of evolution, right? Evolution will say uh, humans came uh, from our ancestors and our ancestors came from, you know, a lump of cells or a lump of cells came from some primordial soup. A primordial soup came from a big bang. And so see, evolution can make sense of everything. And even if we want to follow with them, grant their argument all the way back, we say, okay, where did the big bang come from, right? Where did the matter come from? Where did this, this, this matter that exploded to create everything, so they say, uh, where did that come from? It can't get us back to having, to, to the beginning. Only an understanding of God can tell us, and, and, and God's word, as he reveals it to us, can tell us where things came from. Because if matter was preexistent, if matter is eternal, then matter is God, right? The physical universe is God if that is what was preexistent and that has always been there. Because God predates history. God is what everything depends upon. And in that framework, then matter is God. And that's why we do have um, uh, a materialistic worldview, because matter is all that there is. Matter is God um, in uh, in that worldview. So this is a central claim of Christianity that God created everything. No scientific theory can explain where things come from consistently. Only Christianity can do that as we look to the creating God of heaven and earth. So all things of nothing, many cans of worms we can go down. I don't know if you have one. Um, Questions, yes. Just a a silly thought. There's a lot of energy expended trying to prove science to disprove that which they claim they don't believe in. Right, that's right, exactly, exactly. There is a lot of effort, and, and that's where we see, you know, the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God, and they're trying to disprove the glory of God that's seen here, and, and you know, uh, the, the phrase, thou doth protest too much, right? Um, there may be something uh, going on there. Yes, great point. Anything else here? Yeah, John. Right. That that's this primordial self-existent law that creates these universes is itself matter of faith. It's exactly. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So are we going to trust in a primordial soup? Are we going to trust in a, in a good creator as revealed in Scripture? Um, and there's, that's the, the, oh, who wrote the book? 
Um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist or something like that. Um, making this exact, exact point, right? Um, it, it, yeah, we, I'll stop there. All right, so God's making all things of nothing. And now we have a, a number of phrases um, that continue down this path. Uh, the next one is by the word of his power. So how did God make all things out of nothing? He did it by the word of his power. And we read a couple passages that say this. Um, they use the phrase word of his power specifically talking about Christ and his work. Um, and so I think this word of his power has really has two meanings here. Uh, one is God created by speaking. Now, even that's an analogy because God doesn't have a mouth. As we saw a few weeks ago, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like we do. So God spoke, uh, whatever that analogically means with, for God to speak. It was, it was a, a verbal action that God took that made all things come to be. Um, so that's one meaning. Another meaning is um, speaking by the word of his power. We could hear, uh, understand word in the sense that John refers to word in John 1 as the second person of the Trinity. So this could also be a reference to scriptures, undeniable, uh, as we've seen like three examples of, undeniable testimony to the fact that, that the eternal son of God was, a, was the creator. And so I think here we're saying God created by voice, by, by some kind of verbal action. And then also it's the son of God who is uh, given in many ways prime uh, place in the creative act. So word of his power, I think has these two meanings, but it's God's powerful work. Either way, God's powerful work that created all things. And he did it not by getting his hands dirty or by, uh, by getting down in the mud, but he did it by speaking. He's so powerful, he speaks and it comes to be. Uh, our, um, our labor, we think of our labor, our creative work um, is laborious. Labor is laborious, but God's creative act didn't expend any energy, right? It's not like he was less God or less, um, uh, less powerful at the end of his creation because he is so powerful. He is so, um, so great that his rest at the end of six days was not because he was tired or exhausted. It was it's to show us, to demonstrate for us what our work, yes, it's hard work and laborious, and we do need rest. It's to picture for us our eternal rest, even, that we are invited to participate in through Christ. So our labor is laborious, even though God's was not. By the word of his power, we're, we're trucking. Um, I don't know how we're doing on time. I'll have to keep checking my watch. Um, we're trucking. By the spa- uh, so this next one, though, maybe we'll, we'll get hung up here for a few minutes. In the space of six days... <laughs> In the space of six days. Amen. Amen. That's right. And then, of course, the question, what does space mean and what does days mean? All right. Uh, We've gone through this a little bit before. I'm going to not dive in as deeply as we did last time. I don't know when this was. I forgot to look up time. About a year ago, uh, we went through this in the confession. And um, there's differing views on what days, particularly in Genesis 1, mean and refer to. Um, and I just want to briefly sketch out these views that, that we've talked about a little bit more uh, previously uh, for those who weren't here. These four different views of this word day in Genesis 1. Uh, and the first one is this calendar day view or the 624 day, uh, 624 view, six days, 24 hours. Um, and so the days of creation in Genesis 1 were 
equivalent to 24-hour days, equivalent to solar days that we have now. Um, And so we see this progression. And so Genesis 1 is a historical and chronological account of creation. And Genesis 2 is a description of what uh, of, of the creation of man, primarily day six. It's kind of unpacking what happened in day six. And um, this is the most common, most standard view. Um, and it, it, it is wanting to read scripture uh, as, as clearly as possible. It says six days and it's six days, right? Um, and this is a, a wonderful view because we are trying to, we, we want to keep God's word priority. What God's word says is true. Um, it is, uh, even when we can't understand it or explain it, we trust God and take him at his word. So that's a standard view. Another view is the day age view. Uh, the day in creation is a, uh, undefined period of time. And so we have, uh, six undefined periods of time. It could be millions of years or whatever, um, that God created within this frame. Um, The next one is the framework view, where it takes Genesis 1 not as so much a chronological account, but as a theological or topical treatment of creation from a heavenly view. And then Genesis 2 describes the kind of earthly view of how God created all things. Uh, And so it says Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 have different goals, and we don't have to read Genesis 1 as a purely chronological 624-hour days. And then the fourth one is the analogical day view, where Genesis 1 through 2, um, which is God created the heavens and the earth, that's uh, not just a summary statement, but that's a a, a statement before the creation week begins. So God creates pre-creation week. And then this uh, whole six days, it's just analogical to some theological things that are going on, and we don't really know how or when, and the days might be out of order, and they might be long, they might be short, might be close to instantaneous. Uh, We can't really know or tell. And, um, And so... Genesis 2, though, is an amplification of day 6, and and we get some more concrete data in Genesis 2. So these are different views among the PCA, um, in the PCA, and most presbyteries will accept these different views um, as long as we're saying what the the confession is saying. God made all things by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Um, um, Yeah, so I'll I'll leave it at that. Um, I'm sure there's lots of thoughts and questions I'm not... Yes, ma'am. I... Okay, in the beginning of this particular question, yes. we talk about God's creating. That's right. And we go ahead to some depth of his creating from nothing. That's right. There's nothing that he created from the cross. Now we read in the scriptures about the creation of Adam from the dust of the earth. That's right. So we have to ask ourselves, is this literal? You know, when he made this first man, was it from the dust of the earth? Because if it wasn't, then we look at the world today, and there must have been a baby Adam. Mm-hmm. There must have been an Adam that grew up. Because that's the world we see around us, and that's the way it functions for as long as we've known and history has been recorded. But we know that can be the case because Adam was created as a man, mm-hmm. perfectly recognizable to all of us right. as a human being, and Eve accordingly. Mm-hmm. Why? Do we get so concerned when we come to this six days and we look at what science tells us, this God who created from nothing can make anything he creates appear as old as he wants to be. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Adam was a man. Mm -hmm. He didn't come from a baby. Mm -hmm. He didn't come from a zygote. Mm -hmm. He was a man. Mm -hmm. 
Well, how do we get hung up? You know, how do we get hung up when we get here? That's right. And all of a sudden, you want to rectify this with scientific right. evidence. Right. I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. We know when he created out of nothing, we'll accept that mystery. Right. But right. when we look at a world where there appears to be A, and there appears to be this, all of a sudden, the six days doesn't mean the six days. Right, right. No, it does. Because he can do anything he wants. It can appear any way he wants it to appear because he is God. Mm-hmm. That's right. I don't understand why we so concerned with balancing this with what science tells Yeah. And, and to your point, what, what we need to be careful of is taking what the science says too dogmatically. And here's an example of what I mean. Um, we don't know how much we don't know, and we don't know how much we presume is true. We don't know how much of that is false. Even after the Reformation, many of our forefathers vehemently denied a heliocentric universe. They said, no, that is unbiblical. We, we must believe in a geocentric universe. Um, and they, they thought, uh, based on you know, their understanding of science at the time, um, they thought that was the only way we could understand it. And their, sci- their, their view of science was, was not as strong as it is today. Uh, their understanding, I should say, of, um, of, of, of the, the solar system was not as clear as it was today. So my point in saying that is we need to have a real dose of humility when we come to science and its claims because they can be overturned, um, usually not overnight, but um, in, in a decade, in a couple decades, in a, in a, in a hundred years, uh, scientific um, maxims today c- could be overturned. The only thing that we do know for sure with certainty is God's word. Um, and so we need to hang our ultimate hope, our ultimate understanding on scripture and above um, what science, science claims today, because our understanding is, um, is growing and changing over time. John? I would say also with our changing understanding of science, sometimes scripture, the, how scripture is intending for us to interpret it is not right. always clear. That's right. And so... Is, is when God wrote this, was he intending us to understand this literally mm-hmm. or right. or in, in which way was he under, intending us to understand it? That's right. And then our understanding of that is limited. And so that humility there as well. That's right. That our, our understanding of understanding them is sometimes unclear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So your, your point is, even though God's word is authoritative and whatever it speaks on, we're not always properly interpret, interpreting God's word how it ought to be interpreted. I, I think that's your point. Is that right? Yeah. And so we must understand the context, the genre, the, you know, the intent of what's, what's going on there to, as we interpret scripture. Yeah. One, two. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Adding on about our interpretation of scripture, our interpretation of science, going back to science, um, God created everything, including science, which is study of evidence. Right. So science really is an enemy. I don't see outside. That's right. It's our interpretation of evidence of God's creation, his fingerprints in creation. That's right. We could interpret wrongly, like, mm-hmm. like the example mm-hmm. of our observation of the solar system in the past and right. the centuries and so forth. Yeah.
Yeah. Absolutely. That's a really great point. And, and I want to highlight that because oftentimes we pit science versus faith. You know, what's going to win out, science or faith? Um, and, and science, as you said, is an understanding, dry, trying to dry, drive deeper into understanding God's world. That's what science is, We're trying to understand the world around us. And those things are not at odds. As we dive into science, we're learning more about God's creative work, his, pro- his work of providence as well. And they're not at odds. What's at odds is our understanding of these things um, at times. And we must not treat them like enemies. And that's a, that's a wonderful reminder. That's right. That's the right. That's right. That's right. Amen. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Well said. Well said. Very good. Yeah, Rob. Yeah, so that, that's the, the word of his power. I think there's two things going on here. In Hebrews 1, or so in Hebrews, I believe, 1, 2, or 3, I can't remember which one of those verses that are up there. It speaks of Christ's work by the word of his power. Um, but also, the word there, I think, does speak of Christ himself in John 1, um, of in the beginning was the word. And so I think we have maybe, I think the divines, the Westminster divines, those who wrote this, not that they're closer to God than we are. That's just what we call them, divines, like the Westminster pastors, whatever you want to call them. Um, uh, I think they meant, had a double entendre in mind. So they're quoting from Scripture as Christ's work by the word of his power. But also the word is a reference to Christ. So Christ creating um, and then also the, the speaking um, nature of it. So I think there's, there's both things going on there, Rob. Yeah, good observation. Yep. Right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and that's, I think, one of the, the greatest arguments for the sixth, 624 view that it says there's evening and there's morning the first day. There's evening, there's morning the second day. There's evening, there's morning the third. You know, it goes on all six days. Um, it says there's evening and there's morning. And so, what does that mean if it's not a day? Um, and, and I think that's a very strong argument for 624. Uh, framework would say that this is setting up a literary framework for us to understand God's working. And they would say that the seventh day doesn't say evening and morning, there's the seventh day. So there's something going on in this day seven that interrupts this pattern. And if we're going to say there's evening and morning the seventh day, but scripture doesn't say it, what, what's really going on here? There, there seems to be that transition from the creation account to now providence to ordinary life is interrupted by a non-evening and morning event. And so the framework would say that doesn't help us understand that these six days were actual literal evening and morning events. Um, And then also the framework view would say, okay, how can you have evening and morning uh, without a sun and moon to mark evening and morning on days one, two, and three? Because the sun and moon weren't created in day four. And so clearly they would say evening and morning is a reference to a, a, it's a literary device to help us understand this progression uh, throughout the six days. So um, 
I don't know, any, any pushback there or comments further on that? No, I'm just trying to understand the difference because mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. seems so logical to me. Right, right. And how it fits into God's pattern of the Sabbath day. That's right, that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Even in the Old Testament, there was a uh, battle that was allowed to extend longer. That's right. That's right, yes. So he could still, it's found that day to be longer if necessary. That's right, yeah. So that day was longer than a 24-hour day because of God's miraculous work and, and uh, having the sun stand still and allowing Israel to, to win. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, one, two. Our, You're one. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> Is it possible that all of these ultimate theories are efforts to I think the different views have, uh, they prioritize that relationship between scripture and science in different ways. Uh, Some of them are trying a lot harder to do that than others. Um, I think the day-age view was held by a lot of our Princeton forefathers, Hodge, uh, Warfield. And that was when the theory of evolution was brand new and was just taking over everything. And they said, hey, there's got to be something to this. Let's understand scripture in light of this. So they, some would say, were putting a priority on the science of the day and they end up day age view. Um, So I do think that's true. They put more weight on scientific kind of milieu. Um, Whereas others, 624, classic example, they kind of say, well, we'll deal with that after we deal with the scriptural data. So we'll deal with scripture and then see what science has to say about it, but we're going to deal with scripture first. And I think to various degrees, they're trying to interwork those those two uh, realities together. Is that answering your question? No. So ask it again. (laughs) The 624 hour faith, I don't think it's not. No, it's not. It's not. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Jim. I, I think we have to be careful because we can very easily go down a slippery slope. Did Job really meet God in the whirlwind? Did Moses actually cross on dry land? Did Joshua right. cross on dry land? Right. Was, was, uh, was there really a whale that swallowed up uh, Jonah? Right, you know, right. And we can go down, and, and the end point of that slippery slope is, did Christ rise from the dead? Right, that's right, that's right. Yep. Um, one, of the, one of the questions that Presbyterians will ask of teaching elders who take any of these views, but particularly the non-624 views, is they'll say, what do you believe about the creation of Adam? Because somebody brought this up earlier. This is kind of the crux of the matter. Was Adam result of millions of years of evolution and then just all of a sudden, boom, here, here comes Adam along the scene? Or... Mary Alice thinks this is you, or was Adam created out of the dust of the ground by the work of, by the hand of God to the, being the first human created to represent all of humankind? And the answer should be, I believe in the special creation of Adam. So if, if you have a teaching elder who refuses to say that, write to your presbytery. Um, or if you have a, an elder, a ruling elder or deacon who doesn't believe that, write to your session. Um, we believe in the special creation of Adam because that's what Genesis demands. Um, and then if we start eroding scriptural teaching on this, we say, well, let's throw this out. Then, like you said, we'll end up with throwing out the gospel itself. Um, and, and there are some presbyteries that are, that, are, that are concerned about that. And they say, only 624 in this presbytery will we do. And unfortunately, ah, man, in my mind, I forgot. We, I, the most important thing was next. 
But John is up here to present. So in the, in the space of six days, and all very good, we need a robust view of creation, not just that God created, but God created good. And this comes to our identity as people, sexuality, we'll talk about next time. But there is an order to nature that God created that is good. Um, and we need to talk about, I think, rising out of nature, natural law, helping us understand um, there's an order to humankind, to nature, to sexuality that we need to understand all very good. All right. Um, I'm going to turn things over to John here. Um, thank you for standing up and um, getting me. Oh, I just turned this off. I thought it was off. Now it's on. Um, you start, and I'll, I'll get this up while you, while you start talking. Okay. Let me just do this then. This is the link, persecution.com, Marjorie's. Okay, perfect. Okay. Oh, uh, is this working? Is this on? It should be. Check, check. Is it check. here? Check, check, check. They're working on it. I, uh, Voice of the Martyrs, uh, I think it's June 29th it ends up being, which is about, about 10 days from now. Um, there is a day that is the Day of the Christian Martyr, which is a day to remember Christians that have given their lives in in honor of Christ, to both as his missions, both in, in, in reaching out and go and proclaiming the gospel, and also in just standing up for Christ and being killed for it. There was, um, I remember the news a few years ago, there was a story of, um, what is to be this man coming up on the screen, a man that was, ended up dying in the Solomon Islands trying to reach a, an island, and the news cast it in a who is this Western imperialist that's going there? He's going to bring diseases and destroy their culture. And it just didn't sit well with me. Um, that, that story, I think it was like five years ago. Um, the Voice of the Martyrs actually did, this is going to be a little short video of him. Um, Voice of the Martyrs, the, the president said he was actually a, serving the military for a while. And he would go to the churches and be honored for his military service, but found when he actually was doing missions, he was less honored in churches for, for giving his life for the service of proclaiming the gospel around the world than for protecting the United States. And it, just an odd commentary on sometimes how even Christians in the United States can rev, cannot see the difference between the, the temporary kingdom and the kingdom of God that we should be more concerned about. Not that we shouldn't be concerned or giving honor, but that we should be more concerned about giving honor and preference and honor to people that are giving their lives for Christ. Uh, John Piper said in Don't Waste Your Life, he, he compared uh, a couple that was retiring and had a good, good nest egg and, and lived the rest of their lives to collect seashells. And he said, that's... Then he talked about two women that never got married, lived in Africa and ended up being martyred in their older age. And he, and he was like, okay, which one wasted their life? The one that collected seashells or the ones that were martyred in Africa and never got married? And he's like, is, is Christians... We should be thinking, um, we should be saying, we should be using the, the kingdom of God's standard for what is a wasted life or what is a well-spent life, not the world's standards. And I would, at this point, we can, this is the following video from Voice of the Martyrs about this man who tried to reach the tribe in the Solomon Islands. Uh, off India, somewhere off of India. God, I don't want to die. If I do, 
followers to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, to every nation, to the ends of the earth. John Chow was a teenager when he took his first missions trip and when he felt called to invest his life to reach the people of North Sentinel Island, who had violently rejected all previous contact with outsiders. John answered that call. Here am I. Send me. For the next nine years, every decision John made was with an eye toward going ashore on North Sentinel Island. He served in multiple countries to gain missions and ministry experience. He trained in linguistics to help learn their language. He was certified as an EMT in the hope of serving the tribesmen medically. Once I said yes to Jesus, I was committed. I was all in. I believe that the measure of success in the kingdom of God is obedience. I want my life to reflect obedience to Christ and to live in obedience to him. I think that Jesus is worth it. He's worth everything. In 2018, with the backing of his missions agency, John went to North Sentinel Island. He knew the risks, but his passion for the North Sentinel Lees and his desire to be obedient to Christ drove him forward. Sitting in the boat, getting ready to go ashore, John penned a final note and a challenge to his family. You guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to, and I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand. And I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshiping in their own language as Revelation 7, 9 to 10 states. I pray none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. Within hours of writing those words, John Chow was killed by the Islanders. John believed that the measure of success in the kingdom of God is obedience, and he would be obedient to God's call, no matter the cost. Who will pay the price to go to every tribe? John um, brought this to the attention of the session to help us remember of um, you know, the, this, this call, this missionary call to the world and um, a reminder to us of those who lay down their life for the sake of the gospel. And we can give thanks for them and pray for those missionaries across the world and even consider our own place in life. And maybe the Lord is calling us um, to do something, uh, maybe not this dramatic, um, but maybe so. Um, so let's close in prayer this morning. Lord, we are grateful that you are the creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And we are thankful, 
for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray for those men and women serving all across the world today in furtherance of the gospel going forth. We pray that you would bless their efforts. And we think of those who have gone before us, who have laid down their life, that others might know Jesus Christ. We thank you for them and the example that they set. And we pray that their lives would not um, uh, be lost in vain, that you would be doing a mighty work all across the face of the earth to bring many to faith in Jesus Christ. Bless us as we now worship our risen King together as your people. Help us to see the glory of his, of his, uh, of his throne and of his grace. And may you propel us even to consider how we might be a part of the work of the gospel going forth across the world. We love you, O Lord, and need you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.